Coach Roy last year used to say the offense must feel attacked. Just like you want to attack defenses, the offense must also feel attacked. That's a really good basketball situation where you can attack an offense with your pick and roll defense. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Hachi Oji Train's head coach in Tokyo, Japan, Tyler Gatlin. Coach Gatlin is here today to discuss the rise of basketball in Japan, three-on-three for youth and professional development, and we get tactical and technical talking limiting three-point attempts and getting at-the-rim post-touches during the always interesting start, sub, or sit. Unique and absolute must. The most helpful and highest quality coaching content anywhere. These are some of the comments coaches are using to describe their experience with SG+. From NBA and NCAA championship coaching staffs to all levels of international and high school basketball, SG Plus is designed to help curious coaches discover, explore, and understand the what, why, and hows of what the best in the world are doing. Through our easily searchable 750 plus video archive on SGTV, to our live coaches social in Las Vegas, SG Plus is the assistant you would hire if your athletic director didn't already give the stipend to football. And now, Please enjoy our conversation with Coach Tyler Gatlin. Coach, you've had a great career at different stops of G League, NBA, and now internationally in Japan. And we thought it'd be really interesting to start the show with your thoughts on similarities and differences in the Japanese culture with basketball as opposed to where you came from, NBA G League circles in the U.S. as far as style of play, training, practice, overall philosophy. We'll kind of dive in wherever you want to go about what you're seeing and feeling as a coach over in Japan right now. Yeah, that's a great question because Japan has tremendous momentum as a basketball country. The national team performed really well in the World Cup and going back before that, you know, Japan hosted the Olympics and have produced some NBA players. There's really a buzz around the game in the country. So boys and girls growing up, I think there's a lot of three on three that's taught and that's played. And then even, you know, in the professional ranks, three on three is kind of a thing out here. So players kind of learn the game at an early age of just playing together, passing cut, some fundamental things and just system based concepts and ways to play team basketball. So, you know, as far as like the practices go compared to the U.S., you know, it's getting more and more similar because there's so much international influence into the game out here and in, into the U.S. too in certain levels, especially at the professional level and the major college level. There's a way that the game's taught that I think is almost universal to some degree that all the players can kind of grasp and pick up on. Last season, in Kyoto, I worked with Roy Rana, who has a big international pedigree and also NBA pedigree as a coach. So that was kind of how our team functioned. You know, our practices are on the court, off the court, just the way that our team flowed was 
more or less pattern after an NBA style management organization practice and the players loved it. Japan has taken parts of the game from all over the world. There's head coaches from Australia, from New Zealand. Africa has a big influence in the game over here too, at the high school level, at the college level, into the professional ranks. We talked about how the U.S. has an influence and then Europeans play in the league, Europeans coach in the league, and same in other parts of Asia. You know, there's Korean coaches, there's Korean players, and the Philippines, right? It has a big influence in Japan. So it really is a melting pot of basketball cultures. And the game has a high ceiling because you can see at the youth level, it's amazing. You know, they know how to play over here. And a lot of that is just built through good practice habits. I guess narrow in on one thing to start here for me. And that's what you just mentioned about the youth and training and practice and kind of how players are taught the game from your time in the G League, where they're obviously professionals and coming from various college programs to dealing with youth or seeing the youth in Japan and how they're being taught. I guess anything you mentioned three on three, but is there anything else similarities or differences wise in those two instances? Kind of similar to Europe, the youth teams are a branch of the professional teams. So it's going to be your U15 team and your U12 team pretty much across the board for Japan, which has 54 professional basketball teams. So they're really going to take some pro concepts into the U15 and the U12. I touched on the three-on-three, but I think it also extends into like shell defense, whether you're doing it four-on-oh or four-on-four or five-on-five, it doesn't matter. But some defensive rotation ideas you're putting in to the game at that age and then also just being able to flow into offense, playing a transition of upbeat, a fast-paced style, and being able to flow into drag screens or swing the ball and follow up the screen or get some early offensive type concepts in at that critical development stage of like 12, 13, 14-year-old basketball player. With building trust or team culture and with so many people from different backgrounds, how did you think about when you took over the team or came to the team about building trust and building a culture? I arrived right after the summer league, you know, straight from Las Vegas to Hachioji, and then eight of our players are here. And I think among them, one can speak English, and then our translator's not here. And we're going to practice twice every day. So that was, let's have fun, make the drills interactive, make the players communicate with each other, and just show them what I'm about as a coach in as few of words as possible. And then as the foreign players come in, you're able to bring them up to speed as opposed to the other way around. When they came, our team was already formed. That's where the give and take is going to be. You're going to come on this side of the fence and do things the way that our, our team has been doing with our huddles, with the way that we start and end practice. And we try to make a theme of every day and just take two minutes to explain it. And so sometimes that theme is going to be a Japanese word, a Japanese character that has a meaning about trust or endurance or work ethic, like something like that, where we can take a minute or two and also create dialogue. Once you have that type of trust, then the basketball communication becomes more nonverbal, you know, and then the stuff that is verbal, it sticks because we've heard those words so many times by now. You mentioned how you like to start and end practice and kind of incorporating when the foreigners arrive. 
if you can just elaborate on kind of how you choose to start and end your practices. There's a million ways to do it. And, you know, whether you take a brief pause just to kind of center yourself or whether you get right into it with player development, just rolls into stretching and getting ready to go. I think I saw how the players were doing it last year during the training camp when I arrived before our full team and full staff was together. And same this year when I arrived, just how the players do it. They're going to make a circle right around the center court, really on the center court, going to be a circle and going to kind of debrief. Um, Let's work hard today. We got this and this and this on the agenda. Let's get after it. And then whatever I bring to the table, the theme of today's practice, just a little bit of time, not much, and then hands in and and let's go. And then the same at the end of practice, that's what they're going to do, form a circle and debrief how the practice go, what are special announcements that we have coming up, and then saying, we got to work harder, guys. We got to, you know, we got a big game this weekend, whatever that is, and then hands in. And then the way that we break this huddle is with high fives, like a snake. Then you go around and you high five everybody. And it's cool. I think it's pretty common across the teams, you know, but then again, every team has different influence and different cultures and things that can be unique to them. We say just instead of team or family or whatever, we do say all we got and then all we need. So I'll say all we got, players say all we need. It's cool to our team. It's not the first team that's ever said that, but we're consistent with it and it works for us. And I think the players have come along, you know, to really think it's cool. Why that? Why is it so meaningful? You know, that's a Ty Ellis shout out with the Stockton Kings. We said that one season. And I think it has USA basketball spinoff before it got to Stockton. It was a big part of our team that year. And we got it on sweatshirts and it embodied what we were about. For Hachioji too, it can embody what we're about. What you have, all you got, you know, that's enough. It's all you need. So whatever we face throughout the course of the season, different obstacles that we encounter, we already have the solution because that's all we need. It's work, you know, for us. We've been a resilient team. We've won games with guys injured. We've had some long trips, eight, nine hours on the bus or 10 hour travel days. And that's all fun because we get to do what we love and we truly believe what we have is enough. I kind of wanted to ask about motivation and what you've learned about what motivates players and maybe as your style has changed or stayed the same. When in the G League, these guys are a half step away from the ultimate dream of playing the NBA. Professionally in Japan, a little bit farther away from, I guess, the NBA dream, but still playing professionally. Is there anything different as far as your tactics or what motivates players in those places? Confidence goes so far, I think, in the game of basketball. When you can, as a coach, give confidence to these guys to excel at, especially in the areas that they're good at and things that they do well. You know, if it's a guy that can shoot, really give him confidence that he's a good shooter. Your point guards, your attackers really boost them up, how they can play with speed off of a screen, how to set up for the rescreen, how they can get into their reads when they come off. And giving the guys that freedom to make mistakes while they're growing, while they're developing, that's kind of always been my style. To just keep getting reps, to get to the next rep, to see it happen fast and make that mental adjustment without taking too much time to second guess or overthink or why did this happen or see that there's energy in the gym always 
I mean, that's a very big thing for me, just in a team environment that there's going to be, you know, activity, the ball's bouncing, there's chatter, people are enjoying what they're doing. And anybody who enters that environment can feel that energy or that electricity that's going to go out through this team, through this group that's performing, that's putting on an entertaining display of what they do, of their profession. And that's what it is. You know, it's kind of like service to whatever community is supporting you. And for us, that's Tachioji. That's kind of a suburb of Tokyo, but it can just get exponentially bigger as the team and the organization gets bigger. And so I think giving that confidence, you learn it as a young coach. I saw some tremendous people doing just that. Guys that played in the NBA, like Nick Van Exel, or guys that have made a big name for themselves on player development, like Rico Hines, they're really going to give confidence to these guys to go out and do it. You mentioned at the top the influence of Europe and the U.S. into Japan and in terms of player development, but looking at it from how the Japanese culture and looking at the Japanese player, when you're in these player development sessions, how the culture has influenced them and a player and what they need when you're working with them. Work ethic is probably the greatest asset that I think Japanese players have instilled in them it's just a never quit never stop all out work ethic to go until there's nothing left and i think that's the thing that is changing in terms of the player development you don't have to run through this wall a hundred times but let's do it in a way that's fun that's pleasing to your basketball senses as a player but that's going to be productive to the game which is some of the most simple things like catching and shooting relocating and shooting, finishing at full speed, some passing reads, but finding those blocks that are going to fit that player and serve that player well and recreating a game environment. So playing with a live defender, that goes a long way. And where a player may just shoot for three hours straight without really stopping, let's play for 30 minutes against someone who's trying to stop you from scoring. Tomorrow, I think you're going to be better because you did that and you spent three, four hours just shooting and now you're exhausted with no legs and you missed more than you made. So your confidence isn't there. So that's it. The guys, they're going to work very hard and kind of find a ways to pull that back and then make them eager to compete because that's where you may face some pushback or may face. This is a normal, you know, going against someone like live in an intense environment, you know, as a player development. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Huddle and their latest product, Huddle Instat. Whether for podcast prep, newsletter ideas, or putting together our weekly short and long-form video breakdowns, we rely heavily on Huddle Instat's advanced analytics and extensive content library containing over 460 U.S. and international competitions. For more information on Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. The season is here, but we know that many coaches are already looking ahead at international trips in 2024 and 25. Ourselves, along with a number of former podcast guests, cannot say enough great things about our experiences working with Josh Erickson and his team at Beyond Sports. From handling flights, hotels, game scheduling, excursions, service learning opportunities, and more, Josh and his team provide unmatched service and support throughout the entire trip. To learn more about why more than 650 programs have trusted Beyond Sports, visit beyondsportstours.com 
and tell them Slopping Glass sent you. We want to transition now to a segment on the show we call Start, Sub, or Sit. We're going to give you three options around a topic, ask you to start one, sub one, and then sit one, and then uh, we'll discuss from there. So, Coach, if you're set, we'll dive into this first one. Yeah, let's do it. All right. We're going to get tactical now with you. And this first one is going to have to do with creating advantages for bigs. And just background on this real fast, Pat and I were talking beforehand. I mean, so much about creating advantages you know, for a guard or a wing. And watching some of your film of your team this year, you do have a great big man inside. I believe right now, maybe your leading scorer or second leading scorer. So these are three different ways that you can create an advantage on the catch for your big. And so you'll start the one that would be the most preferred for you, whether it's a switch or a catch with some space. And so option one, creating advantage for your big is setting like a pin down and then sealing. So a pin and seal. So down screen right into a seal. Option two is setting some kind of rip or cross screen or shuffle screen before the post up. And then option three is a roll and seal. So maybe an empty ball screen rolling and maybe kind of a high low look. And so setting the screen and rolling into the seal. So start, sub or sit, those three options for creating advantage for your big. Probably going to go to start, pin and seal. And I think that's specific to our big, maybe David Doblos is 41 years old and he's producing at a high level. He's played in the top league in Japan for many years and we're fortunate to have him. He's taught me a lot, you know, where he likes to catch the ball and you know what he's looking for. But the simplest thing and the simplest plays that we have involve him in some form or fashion going down towards the basket, pinning somebody and sealing your guy as close to the rim as possible. That's going to be the highest percentage shot, and that's what you want to look for. So, you know, in terms of priority, start, pin, and seal. You know, from there, I think it's close and player dependent, but I'll go roll, seal, just because we've been trying to work on that more to sub, roll, seal, or even roll, rebound, which we've been saying a lot. And then Rip Cross, you know, can sit it, but also has some value. Subbing for roll, seal. You know, there's just more things you can do these days with the variety of pick and roll defenses you see. And against Dave, he's done a great job, you know, when he sees a big in the drop, kind of doing, you know, so many different names for it, but whatever Gortat screen or, you know, clap action or getting in front of that guy. And that's something that takes some nuance. And he does a good job for practice work with the guards to make that read. I think it was a newer concept for one or two of our guys. And now we're kind of seeing he's either rolling to seal his man at the rim or he's rolling to kind of set a screen for you to drive. And we also have a big that's the lob threat. And you find difficulties, you know, just trying to throw lobs even to a lob threat guy. So that's where that roll to rebound, you know, set a screen and roll really hard to the basket. And you can either you know, seal this guy underneath the rim and get the offensive rebound, or you can just follow it straight. And we've gotten a lot of points just off of guard attacking and get the ball off the backboard. And then our bigs are going to roll and clean that up. It's great having a big and even trying to still play with like five out systems and keeping the floor spread and playing with the highest, fastest pace that we can. And they're up for it. 
you know, Dave especially loves it. You know, he's going to rebound and take two dribbles and fire the ball at the sideline, run down and catch it and lay it back in. Right at the top, you mentioned how he's taught you so much about post play where he wants to catch the ball, things like that. Where does someone like him, who's a great post player, where does he talk about wanting that? And then I guess, how does that help you design ways to get it to him there? Kind of knowing, you know, what somebody likes. As close to the basket as possible. I mean, that's consistently what he's going to say. He wants to seal his man at the basket. The post up is a post up. It's fine. But then they're going to come double or triple team or going to be too much just him backing down and becomes his show. When you just start giving it in the mid post and go to work, it does. You're not going to play at the highest pace at that point. You know, you're kind of limiting what you're going to get offensively. And he understands that and doesn't call for it there. Very rarely, unless we know we have a matchup that we can exploit, just going to toss it to him and let him work. But in all of our plays, there's some kind of roll seal or pin seal or something that has him sealing right where he wants it, which is a charge circle, basically. And then he's shooting 72% on the season because he catches the ball there. On top of this, too, you mentioned, and it's just interesting with a good player like him who's got a ton of experience, then when they do catch it a little bit off, or maybe, like you said, a double's coming, preferences on movement outside of that, you know, your kind of post-automatics and what they want to do there with a good post player. Learned a lot last year from... Just how we're going to drill once the ball goes into the post and cutting and different actions. And then you can kind of script it in a way that you want to see it happen. But in the game, it kind of becomes its own singular possession on what's going to happen when he gets the ball. But usually we're going to have a cut from the 45. The ball entry, that's where it could be either maybe he's going to cut through the lane or maybe he's going to just screen away. So he has an option again, uphill. DHOs from the post are great, but cuts collapse that defense. And then those weak side kickouts for these guys, that's their escape. So you have to have, you know, just somebody that's willing to space that can shoot, that can read it. Maybe he's going to stay in the corner. Maybe he's going to lift up, but that can become available on the weak side because that really is the way that these bigs can pick apart traps and digs and blitzes from their post ups. You mentioned too, when discussing rolling seals that. He works with your guards in terms of maybe when to Gortat screen or when he's going to try to seal for them to score. What were the reads he was trying to help with his guards so they can understand when he's sealing to score or when he's kind of Gortat sealing for them? He just has a good feel for that level of the drop and what he can get. You know, can he get open or can he make the guard get open? Everything kind of revolves around that, you know, however he's reading it. And then some guards are more comfortable shooting pull-up jumpers than trying to get all the way to the basket and finish. And then some of the pick-and-roll defending bigs, they can kind of sniff out the guys who are a little timid to go into the basket. So they're going to be up more aggressive to take away the two. So I think he does a good job to screen, open up, and then on that roll, reading that big, whether he can get in front of it to clear out that space or whether the guard can more or less bring that big back to him where then now he's sealing it of created advantage. And, you know, and it's cool. And that kind of point guard, big man dynamic is across the board on every team. And bigs are going to have a way they like to talk to their point guards and point guards are going to have a way they feel about their big man. And 
you know, you just want to get them in sync because if you're only focusing on Gortat screens, you know, then you're going to just trip over each other at some point. You see, you're working on catch it and get it back. You're working on defense under restrain. You're working on show and short roll. There's a lot of nuance to that relationship and the way you want to play together because in the game, you got to do something, you know, to counter how you're being played. And having that variety is great. You know, as a big man that can play handoffs, that can play in the short roll, that can play bully ball around the basket, that can sprint into drags. As long as those guards are comfortable with his pace and the way he's going to play, we've got some incredibly easy scoring opportunities because they worked on all those things before the practices. We are always happy to work with companies, coaches, and creators who add value to coaches and the industry. So we're very excited to announce our newest partner and the official presenter of Start, Sub, or Sit, Just Play. Just Play is the premier platform for engaging your team and managing workflow within your organization. Just Play consolidates the platforms you use and integrates with industry-leading video tools to help coaches win in four major areas, teaching, opponent scouting, prospect recruiting, and analytics. So for more information, visit justplaysolutions.com slash slapping glass today. Moving along, our last start subset for you has to do with the defensive side of the ball, limiting three-pointers. So start subset. The first one is how you play on ball, your on ball, your pick and roll coverages. The second one is your off ball screening coverages and how you choose to defend off ball screens. And then the third one is your transition defense, how you set your transition defense. Yeah, so good one. So limiting threes, I think you got to start transition D. That's where so many are going to come. And I think everybody sees when you miss a layup or when you're guard hits the deck or you miss a shot close to the basket how many times does that turn into a three on the other end it's kind of consistent throughout all leagues so having some kind of emergency closeout if that's what you're going for to limit three-point attempts by any means necessary flying at guys in transitions going to be the start but that opens up the paint so we go back and forth a lot on because we give up a lot of threes and transition d you can see you know everyone's going to gravitate towards the paint because that's what we want but then you're going to open up you know threes and then it's like are they going to make them or miss them <laughs> you know i hope they miss them but trans d i think it's a work in progress on how you can limit threes and still be efficient getting back and protecting the rim and then i would sub on ball pick and roll typically across the board if you go under the point guard is going to have the ability to shoot and make threes so fighting over ball screens or having your big be aggressive to deter the guard from coming off and just letting it fly you've got to be locked in because the pick and roll d is soft you're really going to get punished for it in japan and japanese basketball anyway then if you do go under the rescreen is an automatic and then that creates a drive and maybe a paint touch and then now you're into a kick out and closeouts and how we've tried to limit paint touches i think that also allows more three-point attempts by your opponent which as a group we're willing to play that style and give up three-point attempts but really then the closeouts have become the focus and how can we play how can we be a good team trusting that we can close out and at least force a tougher shot than an open one or a wide open one so really dictating the tempo in that pick and roll 
Coach Roy last year used to say the offense must feel attacked. Just like you want to attack defenses, the offense must also feel attacked. That's a really good basketball situation where you can attack an offense is with your pick and roll defense. I'd like to start with your start with how you're thinking about transition defense. And like you said, how to protect the rim, but not give up threes. How is your offensive rebounding philosophy maybe influencing your transition defense in terms of have you found maybe sending more is better or sending less and getting more people back? Where do you fall on offensive rebounding? I think the more possessions, the better, you know, that you can generate and really going to encourage guys to go get the ball. If it's there for you, if, if you can do it, go get it. We work on getting back through the elbows and doing some different things, give some players some ideas and some reads on how and when to go for the offensive board. But then sprinting back, obviously, that's the most important thing anybody can do. But stopping the ball and when and where to stop the ball, you know, that requires a lot of wiggle room, I think, and thought, you know, as a coach, you want to just press the ball as soon as they get it and whoever has it, or do we need to get back first and close off the pain and then come out and stop the ball? Or do we need to do a mix of both, you know, which is then going to be really challenging who goes where and when. So certainly we're going to emphasize it going into almost any game because teams like to run out here and we're going to practice it until the guys are comfortable with how we get back and where some of our key points, like our marks of where we need to go on the court would be in a transition scenario. And then again, can we give an extra a multiple effort, an extra closeout, an extra stunt, make them pass it one more time, and then maybe they put the brakes on and we can guard them in the half court for a possession. You also mentioned that, you know, right now with your team, you're kind of emphasis on limiting paint touches. So in terms of now, if we say limiting paint touches, what are the keys that you emphasize with your team? Whether to switch on the screen, switch the ball screen with our big or with our foreman, or are we going to stay with the big guy? And then we've worked on it a lot. We call it next. I'm not sure what the real term is. I've seen teams kind of doing it now is helping off the corner and stopping the guy from getting in the paint and then switching on to the corner with the on-ball defender. And, you know, you can do it from the nail. Basically, if someone gets a blown by, you know, the help defender is going to be there for the reason to not let him get into the paint. And we've done pretty good as a team committing to it and then flying off that ball handler to get to the corner and close out. And again, teams make some. You know, even if you go as fast as you can and try to close out, uh, they make shots. But we've taken away a good amount of paint points by executing that coverage. And then from the nail, I think, has been really great because more than anything, protecting teams from just driving it through the nail, I think, is critical for defensive success. And having a defender there means he's leaving somebody. So we got to be able to rotate or fly around if he's there to keep a guy from getting into the paint. So a lot goes into it. The simplest thing is just have great on-ball defenders that don't get beat. And then nobody ever touches the paint, but it's harder to do than that. And when working with your guys on these next or these lateral helps and these rotations, you mentioned you'll switch with your fours, but then is your five-man, are you dropping him? Where is his coverage and what's his depth of drop? So he's surprisingly very agile. And then our other big is most athletic player in the league. So both of them are going to be at the level of screen. 
And from there, you know, quickly retreat and, and get back to a big who's a good roller, not hedge, but deter the guard, you know, shock the ball for a second and then get back. The switching, you know, with the five, it can happen, especially late in the possession. Just switch and be aggressive and pressure the ball. And then the rest of the team is going to be in a tighter shell. But pick and roll defense in Japan is especially in the B1 in the top league. That's the most important attribute, I think, of an import player is how they play pick and roll defense. So that drop, being able to drop, but initially being up, that's what the great ones do because they're up and then they can use their length and their size and just their savvy to shock that ball handler, you know, who are very dynamic. They know how to play pick and roll and get shots up. So you got to pay attention, but then you have a, a million dollar player rolling or popping that you've got to get back and guard. So for us, it's kind of the same idea. Just shock the ball, be aggressive, be at the level of these screens. Typically, we're going to push it to the sideline. So if they flip it to a step up, you know, you're still up there at that level, taking away, you know, making that car very uncomfortable. But then it's hard. You have to stunt as a defense. You have to have guys paying attention to whoever this screener is because the screener is usually going to be the best player on the court. So, you know, that guy's a problem. You got to guard him with off ball defenders just as well as with your quote unquote best player. Who's your big man as well. How are you working on stunts? So they're effective and that, you know, it's not a stunt where you just give up a direct line pass for a shot, but you're impacting the ball, able to recover when you're not in these situations going to give the next. Being at the nail early, or being in position early to deter that pass, even for a half a second, because just your presence is there. Making the offense want to skip it to your man, be that much in help that they think he's open more than the guy who's popping. And then still kind of knowing, which the players do a tremendous job of knowing the personnel throughout the league. You know, certainly better than me. And I'm watching as much as I can and catching up and learning these guys tendencies and who's a good player and but they know these guys if they can shoot if they can't shoot and so stunning and getting back or fully rotating a communication amongst the team that they do really well just because they know they've got to pay attention to this guy either popping to the three short rolling or dynamically going to the basket to punish you everyone's focused on that guy tyler you're off the start subset hot seat We've got one last question to close the show before we do. Again, thanks for coming on. It was awesome to hear a lot more about where you're at and go deeper on these things tactically as well. So thank you again. Oh, guys, it's one experience. You know, when you hear slapping glass, it's like cream of the crop. I really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. <laughs> thank you. Coach, we asked the same question to end the show to all our guests. And question is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Investing in myself in the offseason, I think, has been the best. My passion, international basketball. So finding the event that you want to go to, making it happen to see European basketball, to see a EuroLeague Final Four, or watch the World Cup, EuroLeague coaching seminar, whatever it is that can just give you more passion and more knowledge and more love for the game. That as a coach, if you're able to invest in yourself and experience those things, then Coming down later along in the journey, you know, those are the unforgettable experiences and what kind of maybe give the confidence 
to get outside of the U.S. basketball scene and find some success in Korea and Japan. You know, seeing the game grow globally is awesome. All right, Pat. Hey, always fun to have a, just a different perspective on the show, you know, with Coach Gatlin. It's been great connecting with him and someone that has a great amount of experience here in the U.S. And then to take that over to Japan, which, as we know, is just an exploding basketball market. And he spoke to that. We'll get into that in a second. But it was great to just get a different viewpoint on the podcast today. Something we've talked a lot about. Japan's really growing, trying to get more coaches who are over there on the ground coaching there. And so it was a fun conversation we were looking for. And I think it was a no-brainer as we prepared all the ideas we could talk about. It just kind of kept coming back to just communication, training, practice, but all through the lens of in Japan and a league we're still learning about, but also is, you know, with the culture influences is different than Western Europe and the States. So like I said, it was a no-brainer. Let's start there and let's, you know, asking him what he's noticed and how he coaches over there. Yeah. And I think like you just mentioned when we were discussing what to get into with him, you know, talking to him off air over the last couple of weeks as we prep for this, you know, he mentioned just discussing a little bit about the culture and the exploding nature of the sport over there, what he spoke well on and what is interesting to hear is always about development, youth, skills, all those things, and hearing his thoughts on how they try to teach that coming up in Japan. He mentioned really a team game, three on three, learning how to play with each other, like that it is a team sport from the beginning, and that that's like just a fabric of the culture. I agree. And he mentioned, like he said, the three on three, and that's something I have noticed the three on three game and, you know, these tournaments and these professional three-on-three is very popular in Asia. In Europe, it's growing as well. But yeah, it was interesting to hear that the influence that had on the popularity of that game influencing the youth. And I think it you raised a good point and he raised it too. And I know it's what we kind of grew up on and just yeah, playing through three-on-three, you know, developing through team tactics or a team environment. And I know there's a lot of conversations we've been having lately that Practicing in more of a team environment helps drive skill. I agree with you. And I think you and I just on a quick tangent, been talking, studying, interviewing coaches quite a bit on skill and how it develops and going back to Coach Gatlin and that skill develops so much in and around other people. It's also where I'll just quickly insert my miss with Coach Gatlin probably could have talked about three on three and skill development and four on four he mentioned as well for a lot longer be interesting to pick his brain if there's any differences in practice amount of time or starting it and how he implements it in japan right now versus what he saw in the g league and so i just i'll throw in a quick miss for me there could have talked to him more about that personally let's flip over to start sub sit where we were excited to ask him about both of these these are from our own team's perspective on our mind. And then also in preparation for Coach Gatlin, he mentioned he's got a, a great center that really knows how to play the game and has been playing the game for, I think he said, 20 years, 20 plus years. And so let's start with the creating advantages for bigs. And when you got a post, you want to catch it a lot to operate. How do you think about doing that rather than just having them jog down to the block and chucking it in there? Yeah, this was a fun conversation on learning from your players. 
I know we've talked about it a lot, but I think this specific example with one of his veteran players and what he likes in the post and he himself has kind of learned and adjusted his offense to basically what his post player wants. As he said, he wants it as close to the basket as possible, but a good understanding that, yeah, the further out I get it, the harder to score intuitively, that makes sense. But then there's more opportunities to double, triple, you know, then with the pins, the type of screens, I think he mentioned like zipper screens or these gut screens where they can just seal and he's right at the rim. So types of screens they consider to get him close seals at the rim. With the art of post play is really interesting because I think a lot of these, as we were talking about them and then even on air, I was thinking so much about leverage and how a post player that understands how to seal, like he mentioned, the pin and seal is probably really nice because first of all, they visually can usually see the defender where like a rip screen or a cross screen, sometimes that defender is ends up being behind you. So you can't quite feel them because they're coming from behind potentially where in a pin, you can kind of see where you're going to get leverage or where you're going to seal because they're in front of you for the most part. And then also, you know, all these have to do with a great post player can seal someone that doesn't have their bearings defensively. So when you're pinning down, like he mentioned, that big is probably kind of hedging or helping on a curl or that screen coming off. So they're not in a good position when your big's able to then turn and get into them and get that low paint touch. And so I was just thinking a lot about these as he was talking, how it is great when you have a big that understands how to get positioning and then figuring out what you want to run and teach them how to get it. So that way, when they do touch it, it's as close to the basket as possible. We haven't had this coach on the podcast love to get Coach Hurley from UConn on because last year when they won the NCAA tournament, they were fantastic at getting Sonogo, their big, a touch right at the basket. And so much of their stuff was a pin in a seal or a high-low in a seal or a screen in a seal. And they were getting them that thing right at the basket where you can turn, lay it up or dunk it. And different than just having a post that can catch it off the block, turn and face, run split cuts, which we got into. I found there was a lot of interesting kind of nuances in that part of the conversation. I often wonder too with ceiling if it's like an intuitive skill. Of course, you can teach it. I'm not saying it's impossible to teach, but yeah, how much is just like the innate understanding angles? And I think some of the high-end players you see, it just seems to be so intuitive to them. I think a lot too with the intuitive nature has to do with anticipation. I think with the bigs who do it well, they can anticipate maybe the skip pass or they can where those space is going to open up and then get the timing right of like, okay, I can start working now. We're driving my guy up and get the seal where I think maybe the guys who are less intuitive, it has to be set design and knowing like where the ball's specifically going so they can get their timing locked in. Kind of what my, you know, never having played the position or really done a seal in my life has taught me. Yeah. It looks scary down there. Yeah. Not for me. No reason to go down there. Flipping over to the limiting threes and you and I have been in this discussion ourselves with coaches and just defenses that limit three-point attempts. You know, these were three areas, the pick and roll coverages, the off-ball screens, and the transition that we both thought, you know, if you're trying to limit threes, these three have ramifications. And I think was interesting, one, was his start and transition. And then we also got into some nuances, though, of him talking about they gave up more threes because they had a no-paint touch mentality, which 
you extrapolate that out means you're probably giving more help in gaps, which means you're giving up maybe that extra pass to the corner and then you're closing out. And along that note, and he posed the same question, I guess, or what he's thinking a lot about with transition defense is like, how do you protect the rim or shrink in, but also not give up threes? That's what we also talk about. I know in our conversations, how many offensive people are you sending the board and tagging up? And then, yeah, how do you run back, you know, and shrinking in or loading up at the nail? But as we talked with Coach Hardy, are they now exploiting that to get flare threes? Yeah, I think his sub, interesting talk about pick and roll coverages. And, you know, especially in the international game, NBA, higher levels where the pick and roll just dominates almost every possession. And how much time you spend on what you're doing in that coverage and then how it just kind of filters down from there as far as what are your help responsibilities, what are your gap responsibilities, what are your rotations, what are your closeouts? Because if you're hedging, short hedging, dropping, whatever it is you're doing, obviously then we talk with Coach Marco Barach about this a lot. The aggressiveness on the ball and the pick and roll is going to influence what everybody else is doing. And so here with limiting threes, his sub was pick and roll coverages. So he kind of talked a little bit about trying to limit the three of the ball handler. I think there's also limiting the three of like the whole team, where if you're more in a drop or a switch, you're able to stay with your assignments everywhere else and hopefully not give it that up. Last point, building off your reference to Coach Barach and how you think about the three-man rotation or your shell coverage behind the pick and roll. We had the conversation with Coach Gatlin then about why they're giving that next or that lateral help. Because again, their philosophy, they want to limit paint touches, you know, so, you know, we talked about big drop depth, but that's why then they're going to be aggressive in those stunt lines to keep the ball out of the paint, how that's now influencing their tags and their off ball coverages. Yeah. I mentioned a couple of things miss wise from my end. Was there anything else from your end? We did get in the closeout conversation. He mentioned emergency closeouts when talking about his transition defense and I mean, I can always just keep going further on closeouts, especially to the when we were talking about limiting threes. And again, just closeout philosophy tied to your overall defensive philosophy. I can go great lengths in that conversation. For sure. Well, once again, we thank Coach Gatlin for coming on and wish him the best of luck the rest of the way. If there's nothing else, we'll start wrapping this up. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that. Good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.